Jim, I am exceptionally excited for this interview because I'm someone, I'm an outsider. I'm a researcher who comes at all of these things from the outside perspective, which in some ways can be helpful because you don't get wrapped up in the day-to-day. -day, you don't get wrapped up in the minutia and the details. And sometimes it does pay to have an outside perspective. But there are definitely times when being inside, having the experience, having a visceral experience about money and finance, especially as it's unfolding in crucial moments in history, can definitely be a huge help. And that's where you come in, because you were at the front row center stage during history's, one of history's, monetary history, finance history's biggest events. And one that I think is still to this day, though it was more than 25 years ago, incredibly misunderstood. And I'm talking about LTCM, of course, and I want to read a quote from you to get this thing started because I think it really does frame what really most of our discussion will be about. You said that Peter Fisher, who was the open market desk manager at the time, came to your office at LTCM and said, and they went through your books and this is what he said. He said, according to you, he said, we knew you guys would destroy the fixed income market, but we did not know you would also destroy the stock market. So basically, the Fed had its eyes opened. And I think, you know, a good way to start this is that there is a misconception, even to this day, that LTCM was all just a bunch of nonsense, that the Fed just bailed out its Wall Street buddies. There was no real danger here. And it underscores the lack of appreciation, really the lack of knowledge for the financial and monetary system that developed a long, long time ago. Uh, Jeff, first of all, that's a very, very good way to put it. And um, yeah, the, the Peter Fisher meeting was uh, was memorable. And I uh, um, I wrote about it in uh, in one of my books, The Road to Ruin. I had a chapter on it where I just described it in a lot of detail. But what was interesting about the meeting, a couple, there are a lot of misconceptions. But the, the one is, you know, the Fed came along and bailed you guys out. Well, they didn't bail anybody out. They they precipitated a rescue. There was a rescue and, and a bailout, but it was done by Wall Street. Now the Fed got everyone in the room and knocked heads together and made it pretty clear that they had to go do something. But it was a private rescue at the end of the day, number one. Number two, the Fed had no idea what was going on. I mean, they, yeah, there was a little something, a little bit on um, the CNBC or whatever, you know, but 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 we did. We, uh, despite the massive failure of risk management, which is pretty obvious, our accounting and financial controls were excellent. We knew exactly, like to the penny, uh, how much we were losing every day and what was going on, et cetera. There are a couple of interesting things about that. Number one, you got to go all the way back to the 1991 bond trading scandal at Solomon Brothers. Solomon Brothers, like, you know, who are they? But in the day, they were the biggest, uh, baddest government securities dealer on the planet. And John Merriweather and Larry Hillebrand, Eric Rosenfeld, the other principals of LTCM, and Myron Scholes came out of Solomon Brothers. Now, what happened there was there was a bad actor. He tried to corner the market in two-year notes. He actually did briefly, but he had to break the law to do it because he had to, He said these were customer positions, they were house positions, et cetera. He, uh, he spent some time in jail. But, but he told John Merriweather, John Merriweather was his boss. He said, you know, I basically broke the law here. So Merriweather, to his credit, went to the chairman, the president, and the general counsel, you know, John Goodfriend, uh, Tommy Strauss, and, um, and Don Fierstein. Well, what else can you do? You tell your CEO, you tell the president, you tell the the general counsel that there's been some wrongdoing. You've done your job. Uh, but, you know, Breeden was the head of the SEC. He was on the jihad. All these guys got fired, but and JM resigned. But, so he had to go to the, spend a little time on the beach. And then he came back with the hedge fund, long-term capital management. We brought all these guys from Solomon Brothers. But that was a a searing experience for them. 
because they had seen you know massive losses. Uh, there was it was actually a run on Solomon Brothers, Jerry Corrigan behind this closet bailed out Solomon Brothers because it was not long after Drexel. And they said, we don't need two massive failures of primary dealers in a row. So we got to bail out Solomon Brothers, and they did, and Buffett came in as a white knight, and that, that's, all, that's all ancient history. But as it applies to LTCM, these guys, they were traumatized by that. So we start LTCM. I'm there on day one. I'm the lawyer, and they take me aside, and they go, Jim, when we're entering into these swap agreements, we have to make sure of two things. We never have to put up collateral unless we get it. We we got to get the collateral at 10 in the morning. We'll put it up at 4 in the afternoon. But we never want to be in a situation where we have to post before we receive. Because they were all two-sided trades. They were all arbitrage. So that's, that's the one thing. Um, and no haircuts. I mean, we, our nickname was No Haircut Capital Management. So we would, we would give you... Um, some, you know, certainly mark to market. Yeah, mark to market is paid in full, but the initial margin was like pretty close to zero. Uh, and uh, and we want no material adverse change clauses. Uh, was, they never wanted to be in a position where the position worked, they were happy with the book, but somebody could you know blow you out or seize collateral. Your prime broker could put you out. They never wanted that. They wanted it in you know, contractually. So the funniest thing we did is. Uh, our first big swap agreement was with Credit Suisse. And so I negotiated it. And there's, uh, we had a billion dollars at the time. It was the largest hedge fund opening ever up till that time. Um, and so the question was, where is the point at which we can terminate you? you know, material, not quite material exchange, termination clause. So Credit Suisse said, okay, $500 million, because that's down half. You know, a billion, you're down half, you still have $500 million left, we can terminate the swap. So we agreed to that. So then the next one comes along. You're doing J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and you know UBS and all the rest. And every time the the issue came up, I said, "Well, Credit Suisse agreed to 500 million, so we're not going to give you a better deal. They were the first dealer, so you get 500 million." And they all said yes. But what no one realized is that we eventually got to seven billion. So if you have a 500 million dollar termination clause, if you go from seven billion to 500 million. I mean, you're toast. You're just, you're just, you're just, it's a countdown to zero, right? But everyone agreed to the 500 million. So, what, so when the crunch came in 1998, what happened was everybody wanted to terminate us, and they all went to their lawyers, and the lawyers said, well, you, you, you have no rights until you get to 500 million. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is like $7 billion. They've lost 90%, but they couldn't do it. We had bulletproof agreements. But the backstory was that that came out of Solomon Brothers. They never wanted to go through that, and they didn't. And uh, so, when you, but take, seriously, take the two things I just described. Matching collateral. So collateral in, uh, collateral out is never sooner or larger than collateral in. It, it, was a, it could be a wash, but it couldn't be a net drain on capital, number one. Number two, the termination clause was so low relative to where the book started that you couldn't terminate us. We were, we, we were all on the plane together, the 14, the 16 banks, uh, and there were 19 lenders and a billion dollar unsecured credit facility. We were all on the plane together, seatbelts strapped in. We were all going to crash together. Nobody was getting out first because the, the contracts, and I, I wrote them, were bulletproof. Um, so everyone's like, what? Uh, and so it's, it's just going down, down, losing a couple hundred million dollars a day. Like I remember David Mullins, great guy, former vice chairman of the Fed. He was one of our partners. So we had you know Fed insiders at the table. And I remember one day he looked up and said, can't we just make money one day? But it was just this steady erosion. It was heading to zero. So what we did, we called the Fed. The Fed never called us. We called them. 
not as not for a bailout. We didn't expect it. We we said that's never going to happen. We're a hedge fund. We're not a bank. They're not going to bail us out. But we, we were just being good corporate citizens. We say we see this plane crash coming. We just want to let you know. You know, get ready because it's it's coming. And that's when Peter Fisher and the other the other guy was in the room was Gary Gensler, who's Mr. Bitcoin. You know, the, he's the head he's the head of the SEC. Uh, and Dino Cost is good quant and NJM and I said so we and it's exactly what you said. We spent hours going through the books position by position. As far as the equity markets are concerned, what nobody knew, um, other than Bear Stearns was our prime broker, we were we took four point nine percent positions. So five percent is when you have to file I think it's form thirteen D with you have to publicly say I own this stock. First of all it was hundred percent derivatives. These were total return equity swaps. So there was an, an issue. Well, do I have to do I have to report it to publicly to the SEC if it's a swap? Well, no one really knew the answer, but uh, it hadn't been litigated. But we took a conservative position. We said, yeah, if if you do. So we went to four point nine percent. But the combination of the swap and the four point nine meant we never reported this. We didn't have to, um, and it was completely off balance sheet. But they were blind positions. We were fine. You go back and look at all the deals: MCI Worldcom, Boeing, Lockheed. Um, uh, there's uh, oh, uh, Sydney Travelers. All the big deals at that time, we were 4.9% of all of them. So we had a $15 billion risk arbitrage book that nobody even knew existed. Now, your counterparty to us, your whoever, Morgan Stanley, you know, Bear Stearns, or uh, I'll tell you a story about Bear Stearns. Um, so all of a sudden, LTCM goes out. So these guys, they're all dealers. People think dealers speculate. They, they don't really. They take two-sided positions. They're in it for fees and spreads, uh, and there's risk. But if LTCM's on one side of the trade, they've got some other hedge fund or maybe another bank or somebody in Europe on the other side, and they're, they have a two-sided position. Well, if one side just goes away, you're naked long or short. You've you got this one side. You've got to go cover. Well, imagine everybody on Wall Street trying to cover... $15 billion of equity in an hour, because that's that was the re reaction function. And Peter- And they all, get the, they all get that from the same people, right? It's when you're laying off risk, you're laying off risk to the same counterparty. So everybody's calling the same who person you, to take those out of the trade. You're gonna call Goldman Sachs or-, or Yeah, Goldman they're Carolina. calling you. <laughs> oh, exactly. So so Peter, he was a bond guy, but he he he, he understood this and he knew it. So he said, we got to, so he went back to New York. This was on a Sunday, our meeting. He went back to New York. He met with, uh, I think it was Sandy Warner, who was the head of J.P. Morgan at the time, and uh, and John Corzine was at Goldman. And just I think it were three guys. Um, I think it was um, J.P. City and uh, and Goldman. Um, they said we got to do something. So then they called around. So there was a meeting at the Fed that Wednesday night. This is all the last week of September, uh, and they got everybody in the room, and uh, and they just kind of said. You know, you have to do something. But, but to your point, Jeff, they weren't bailing us out. They were bailing themselves out because I said if we if we went bankrupt, I could just sleep in the next day. It was you know, it wasn't going to affect me that much. But I was losing money. But you know, just uh, uh, there was nothing else to do. Um, but uh, but you guys are going to have uh, what was a hundred and was actually the derivatives position were one point three trillion dollars. That was the notional value of the derivatives position. It says I get to sleep in. You guys have to cover one point three trillion in a totally illiquid market. So they they understood that. So Wednesday night we got a term sheet. Wednesday to Sunday nobody slept. Um, you know it was funny we we're scatting arps. They were not like 
Nobody was in charge, by the way. I was in charge of our team. Uh, we had a couple law firms. Um, but on the other side, there was no lead bank or single bank. The Fed, once the Fed got catalyzed the bailout, they washed their hands of it. Everybody left Liberty Street and walked across to, to, to the Merrill Lynch headquarters at the time and, um, and, and took it from there. So, and they didn't trust each other. I mean, Wall Street, they hate each other. So they, so they were being, it wasn't quite a gun to the head, but they were being forced to collaborate for their own uh, good, even though nobody trusted anybody. And then, um, then there was, sometime in those three days, a uh, fax comes in. We used to still use fax machines at the time. And it was a term sheet signed by uh, Hank Greenberg of AIG, Warren Buffett of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, and John Corzine for Goldman Sachs. It was a three-party term sheet saying, we'll buy out the whole thing, but um, you guys you guys all get fired. They, they were going to use AIG financial products to run the book. Buffett was going to put up the money. Goldman was going to be the dealer, and they were going to save the world. Uh, so JM hands it to me. He goes, what do we do with this? I said, well, I have to, call, I have to respond. You can't just blow off an offer. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. So I called Buffett's lawyer and I said, look, what you want to do is not feasible. Just be clear. I'm not saying no. I'm saying the way you want to do it is not feasible because the, it was, a, it was a, what they call hub and master feeder structure. So there were actually nine funds you could invest in and all the money funneled down to the trading book. They wanted to buy the trading book, but I said, I got, I got nine partners. I got to go to all of them and, and get permission for this. I said, but here's, here's what you can do. We'll form a new company make it a new feeder, you put the money in, you'll own 95% of the book at that point, and you can do whatever you want because you'll have the votes. And the lawyer, he was a good lawyer, he said, well, Buffett told me uh, that you couldn't vary the terms, take it or leave it, you know, we, I couldn't vary the terms. I said, well, get him on the phone. Um, but Buffett was on a fishing trip in Alaska with uh, Bill Gates, and they didn't have any cell phones. They were, they, they, I think they had satellite phones, maybe, but I'm sure, they, I'm sure they did. But they were basically incommunicado. So the lawyer said, I can't get them. I said, and he said, I have, I have no authority to change the terms. I said, well, let's be clear. I'm not saying no. I'm saying this is not feasible. And it's, okay, nothing done. And that was that. But, but here's Goldman. Part, my point is, here's Goldman, part of the consortium, right? But at the same time, they're doing a side deal with Buffett and AIG, so, you know, typical Goldman, like you're on both sides of the, the trade. So we worked night and day. You know, first day the jackets come off, second day the ties come off. No, ties come off first, then the jackets come off, then the shirts are unbuttoned down to the waist, no one's bathed, and it's just we're working around the clock. So we got it done. But, here, but, but here's the point. We got it done late on a Sunday night, just before Tokyo opened. If we had not got it done, if that had not been issued, the, every market in the world would have closed. Sequential, starting in Tokyo, London, New York. Uh, there was, if we had, we were, we had a bankruptcy room, like in our office, like five different teams. There was a bankruptcy team, a tax team, uh, a deal team, um, you know, et cetera. And I, I would just make the, I was like a doctor, make the rounds and I'd check in on everybody. But the next move would have been to file for bankruptcy, and then that would have been announced, and you know we, we know what would have happened. Every market in the world would have closed. So the fact that we found... I mean, Jim, that's that's the point that I think a lot of people don't really grab on, because it's so esoteric and abstract. They don't understand that how could one hedge fund in the, in the go-go 1990s right. possibly blow up the world? And something you just said earlier, I think is really the message here, is the Fed had no clue. Right. They had no idea what was going on because we all had these 
conceptions that banks were banks and securities firms were securities firms. The old Glass-Steagall prohibition, the separation right. between the risky Wall Street types and the depositories that are perfectly safe. And there's a bunch of markets over there and whatever they're doing, that's fine. But we're the Federal Reserve, we're the banking system, and that's all completely separate and walled off. And I think what LTCM to me showed was, no, these things are all combined together in ways that we can't even really consider until something happens. We don't even, you know, you talk about John Merriweather and Robert Merton, all these, you know, um, who was the other one? Uh, Myron Molly, Scholes, wasn't Molly he involved? Scholes, yeah. In, yeah. yeah. These Scholes. titans of Wall Street and mathematics and quantifications. They had these sophisticated formulas for figuring out the downside, but they're you don't really know the downside because the models are so they're too, they're too simplified until you actually get there. Right. And because we had all these preconceived notions of separations, banks are fine and brokers are risky. All of a sudden we say, Hey, there's so many connections there. It really should have been a watershed moment where people started taking a harder look at whether or not those notions that we had about banks being safe was actually true. Instead, as you're saying, you, you put together this rescue from Wall Street and everybody just went back to sleep as if, okay, we survived, everything's fine. Right. Um, and, and then remember, that, so that was September 1998. The, that was the height of the dot-com boom. Now, we weren't in the dot-com boom. Yeah, it got but, completely lost in the bubble. It's like, well, oh, it's just a we're, yeah, interesting we're footnote. Kind of, we're, we're like hanging out in bars, having a drink and like, you know, kind of post-traumatic stress syndrome. But there's uh, Jim Cramer saying, you know, everything, everything's going to, to the moon. Uh, so it was, there's a little cognitive dissonance there, but, um, but I'll add another, everything you said is exactly right, Jeff, but I'll add another element, which to this day, Alan Greenspan does not understand. And I don't think any of the central bankers really understand it, which are the, the danger from derivatives. Now I'm not a derivatives basher. I'm not, I, I actually invented, I did the first sovereign, uh, credit default swap, but we, we did it with a blank sheet of paper. There were no forms. We, we had to say, how, how many ways can the government screw you over? And we, it was a long list, but we had to write them all down at the time. Before, before No, we, we invented it. It, it was a um, billion dollars on Italian government credit, uh, but the counterparty was Sumitomo Milan. They were, uh, they were long Italy, we were short Italy, so it was, you know, it was an accident, we did, we did that trade. But, um, but here's, and Greenspan revealed this again in 2008, um, when the when the uh, I know you don't like to call it the mortgage crisis, and you're right, it was a euro dollar crisis. But but the mortgage uh, situation was bubbling. Actually, probably 2007. And the analysis, and I heard this from a lot of smart people. Um, uh, 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 I think Ben Stein. Uh, he's, he's an actor. He was in uh, um, uh, uh, Ferris Bueller, right? Okay, so but he's he's, he's smart guy. But but here's what they said. Here's what they all said. The total amount of uh, subprime and Altay, Altay is kind of like subprime, but the, you know the cheesy mortgages, no doc mortgages or whatever. The total amount was about one trillion dollars. So they said, which it was, that was the correct number. And they said, so let's get crazy and assume a twenty percent default rate. You know, five percent default rate in mortgages is a is a meltdown. But let's just say twenty percent. Well, twenty percent of a trillion dollars is two hundred billion, which in real terms was less than the money lost in the SNL crisis in the nineteen eighties. And so they said, well, we got through the SNL crisis, you know, and in real terms, this is about the same 200 billion. It's bad. There'll be losses, but we can muddle through. What they didn't realize is that the derivatives outnumbered the book value six to one. It wasn't a trillion dollars. It was six trillion dollars. And now if you apply 
you know, even 10% losses, it was 600 billion, not 120 billion or 200 billion. In other words, because Greenspan took the, the kind of the, I'll call it the ICAD view of derivatives, which, which isn't incorrect, except he didn't take it far enough, which is, okay, any, any loan, any security, it's a bundle of risks. You've got, you know, the credit risk is, you know, is the guy going to pay me back? You might have foreign exchange risk if it's in a different currency. There's operational risk. There's, there's fraud risk. There's um, interest rate risk. Even if it's not in default, you could lose. So it's, it's a bundle of risks. And so the idea of derivatives is like, let's disaggregate the bundle and pass them out to individual counterparties who are in the best position to hold it. Like, I'm really good at credit, so I'll take the credit risk. Or somebody else is a major foreign exchange to it, I'll take the foreign exchange risk. So take the derivative bundle risk, parse it out to counterparties who are in the best position to hold it, and that's more efficient because everyone will offer better pricing if they're assuming risk that they can, that they can bear. And that's exactly right. But what Greenspan didn't understand is that there was no limit on the amount that you could create. That He was assuming a one-for-one -one ratio. A billion dollars of loans is a billion dollars of risk. Unbundle it, make it more efficient. True enough. But you could turn it into six or eight or ten billion dollars of loans, in my example, on a, on a one billion dollar security, because it comes out of thin air. You just book it, just write it up and, and book it. And and that's the Fed didn't understand it in 07, did not understand it in 1998. I don't. I think they still don't understand it because there's no way to track it. In in September 2007, I went down and met with a senior treasury official, the guy who was in charge of this. Um, and I could see I could see this coming a mile away. I told you I was talking about it in 2005. So this was um, before the acute phase in 2008, Bear Stearns and all that. But it was you know not long after Jim Cramer. They know nothing. They know, you know Aaron Burnett that whole scene. Um, and uh, I met with this guy. I said, look, here's what you need to do. This is the U.S. Treasury. I said, send out an order to all the banks and major dealers and tell them to report to you in spreadsheet form, machine readable form all their derivatives position. Don't tell them what to do. You're not regulating them. You're not telling them they got to get out of anything, et cetera. Just get the data because this is going to blow up and it's going to end in your lap, end up in your lap, and you're not going to know what's going on. But if you get the data, hire IBM, Global Services, uh, put it in a secure, you know, treat it like classified information, put it in a secure environment, just have it all good to go so that when this blows, you actually know what you're talking about. And the guy was a nice guy, and he said, uh, this is the Bush administration. He said, no, we're free market guys. We don't believe in interfering with the... That's literally what he said to me. We're free market guys. We don't believe in interfering with the private sector. Uh, we want to leave everybody. And I said, I said, you're not interfering. I said, you're just getting the information. But they didn't understand it. They didn't understand the importance of just knowing where all this stuff was. So whether it's Greenspan and others not knowing... Um, the Jim, that's the, the part that really makes me angry is because LTCM gave you a roadmap to what 2007, 2008 looked like. Correct. And you would have thought that somebody at the Fed in the government, some, even the private sector, people would have said, hey, we dodged a bullet here. This was really close. This was right. this was a pretty big deal. Maybe we should go back and take a second look and make sure this doesn't happen again. And everybody right. just said, well... They had no big deal. And everybody, like you said, it was the go-go 90s. Everybody just went back to sleep. Yep. And then what's even more uh, really should piss everybody off is that we get to 2007. Somebody at the Fed should have said, 
wait a minute, I've seen this before. Didn't we do this a decade ago? Didn't we go through all this derivatives, balance sheet, off balance sheet, can't really figure everything out? This idea that banks are fine and brokers are bad and there's no, there's, you know, there's big walls between them. I mean, everything that came up in 2008 came up in some fashion in 1997 and 1998. And by the way, the people, the greatest failure, and I agree, you described it exactly correctly, Jeff, the greatest failure uh, the big three were um, Alan Greenspan, uh, Bob Rubin, and Larry Summers. And they were the, uh, I think Time Magazine called them the Committee to Save the World. Uh, right. Time Magazine. There was one person, there was only one person in Washington who understood what I went through and what you just described, and that was Brooks Lee Bourne. She was the head of the CFTC. And to this day, I can't, this is like, this is my list of theories that I can't prove, but I think there was just like a lot of misogyny. She was she was the only woman among the top regulators. They're like, what does she know? And uh, she was like, no, they, she she understood the derivatives. CFTC had jurisdiction. We met with them and took them through the whole book. And she wanted some kind of regulation on derivatives. And it wasn't like get rid of the market, but maybe they would have to be on exchanges. Maybe it would all look like the CME, maybe margin, whatever it was. And they just ran her off the road. They said, no, we're not touching derivatives. And, and so then you had an exact replay 10 years later. That's that, by the way, um, the other thing that drives me crazy are normal, normal distributions and the bell curve. I mean, it, it, it applies to some things, you know, IQ and height and stuff like that, but uh, it does not apply to capital markets at all. And, you know, the, I guess it was on a four You can year. never get the tails fat enough or in the right, the right shape. They're always, well, they're always nonlinear and asymmetric. That's correct, but it's not even the right degree distribution. They, right. you know, Jamie Dimon and his you know, letter, uh, J.P. Morgan about five years ago, it was right after the London Whale, and they lost, I don't know, $6 billion or something like that. So we had to explain it to his shareholders. And he goes, yeah, we, we screwed it. I said, but this is like a once in every three billion year occurrence. That would be, if you apply the bell curve and you look yeah. at what happened, it, the frequency would be once in every three billion years. Uh, but it's not a bell curve. That's the point. And I said, Jamie, when, when the data doesn't line up with the theory, you're supposed to question the theory. You don't question the data because we know what happened. Uh, and is there a, a degree distribution? Is there a curve? That fit because these things happen every seven or eight or ten years. We just go back. I mean, yeah, nineteen ninety eight, two thousand eight. That was a uh, you had your warning, but go back two to once in a lifetime events, right? Yeah, and it's in ten years apart. But uh, yeah. but go, but go back to nineteen ninety four, the tequila crisis. I mean, the the irony there. Bob Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury, went to the Congress to get money to bail out Mexico in the tequila crisis, nineteen ninety four, and Congress said, "You crazy? We're not." bailing out Mexico, forget it. And he went back to the treasury and he single-handedly bailed out Mexico using the exchange stabilization fund, which is a multi-billion dollar treasury slush fund that they can, and, and when Congress authorized it, they said to the treasury, you can do whatever you want with the money. You don't have to come back to us for any congressional appropriation. So it's literally a, like a $50 billion slush fund. Cannot thank Jim Rickards enough for stopping by and, and really sharing his inside knowledge of one of the key moments in history. And there's a lot more to it, but that the rest of the conversation is available only for Eurodollar University members and subscribers. So if you aren't a Eurodollar University member and subscriber, I highly recommend you become one because what Jim and I got to talk about, and this is only the first part of a conversation that we're going to have to come back to several times, we continued with the inside stuff on LTCM, the monetary um, evolution that was going on as he saw it from the inside. As I talked about in that interview, 
As an outside researcher, it really is tremendously helpful to be able to talk to people who were actually there. And again, as I said, LTCM, most people have forgotten about it, but it was a critical moment in monetary, financial, and economic history that really should have changed the course of the world. We might have been able to avoid 2008 if we really understood what was happening back then. And understanding what's happening back then is still incredibly important today, which is why I recommend you get the rest, the second half of this interview with Mr. Rickards, as again, he shares lots of his insights, not just in LTCM, but the monetary and financial system in general. Again, you got to become a Eurodollar University member or subscriber in order to get the conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. See you again next time.